This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. By now, you more than likely have heard what President Donald Trump said about NFL players who protest by kneeling during the national anthem. By saying he'd love to see NFL team owners fire players who kneel, and calling those players a word I'm pretty sure my engineer would bleep if I repeated it, the president set off a fire throughout the NFL with players, team owners, league officials, and fans now seemingly all at odds with one another. What started more than a year ago as a protest by former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick has now expanded into a fight for the future of the NFL, taking what was once a proxy war between players and owners out into the open. But with the president's remarks and ensuing tweets keeping the anthem protest in the news, the NFL faced a fresh crisis. In the face of sliding ratings and ongoing questions about concussions, the league was desperately searching for a solution to keep politics out of football. In today's episode, Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham bring you the -the behind-the-scenes story of the debate between NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and team owners on how to contend with protests, and the six days in September when players found themselves with newfound power. Before we jump in, a friendly reminder, if you like Double Truck Stories, you can do us a favor and subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. And join me after the show as Seth comes by to talk about how getting sources to talk is a little bit like checking in with family at the end of a long day at work. And now, here's Six Days in September by Don Vanetta and Seth Wickersham. Six days in September, NFL players seized control as league scrambled by Don Van Natta Jr. and Seth Wickersham. As Demora Smith drove Monday morning to Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport for a flight to his annual locker room meeting with the Buffalo Bills, his phone rang. It was Roger Goodell. The two longtime adversaries, the NFL Players Association Executive Director and the NFL Commissioner, had not yet spoken about the previous weekend when league executives, team owners, coaches, and most of the league's 1,664 players scrambled to figure out an appropriate response to President Donald Trump's harsh criticism of a few players' decision to kneel during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner. Many players were outraged by Trump's comments during a September 22nd rally in Huntsville, Alabama, not only because he had mocked the NFL's attempts to make the game safer, but because he had said he would love to see an owner removed from the field and fire any son of a who chose to kneel during the national anthem. A small protest, started by quarterback Colin Kaepernick a year ago under President Barack Obama, had now become a league-wide, nationally polarizing crisis under Trump. By Monday, everyone had retreated to their respective worlds. Goodell to his bosses, the NFL team owners who don't want anything interfering with the league's annual $14 billion revenue, and the players to their locker rooms and their families, many of whom had strong opinions about the kneeling and wanted to know what each player intended to do about it. Now Goodell was calling Smith, and the overarching question was whether the league and the union, two entities that never miss a chance to argue, would unify against an unprecedented attack by the president, or split again. It certainly was my takeaway that the commissioner was looking for a way for the protests to end, Smith said Friday when asked about his 30-minute conversation with Goodell, while declining to offer specifics about what was discussed. 
Goodell declined to comment, but a league source did not dispute Smith's account. Knowing the league the way I know the league, they are first and foremost concerned about the impact on their business, Smith said. That's always their first concern. I mean, who are we kidding? Nobody was kidding when many of the NFL's highest-profile owners, including Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots and Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, expressed concerns last week that the optics of hundreds of players kneeling, sitting, or remaining in the locker room during the playing of the National Anthem had alienated many fans at a particularly perilous moment for the NFL. TV ratings for many of this year's games have continued to slide that began last season. Some league sponsors have grown skittish about the backlash, and most surveys have shown that a majority of NFL fans are turned off by the politicization of the game. To the commissioner's suggestion that the protests should end, Smith said, My only response was, I don't have the power to tell our players what to do. At the end of the day, this is a group of players who are exercising their freedom. There is no room for me to snap my fingers and tell our players, it's time for you to give up a freedom. Just the idea offends me. It's almost as if the players are being asked, what's it going to take for you to stop asking to be free or to be treated like an American? What would it take? That was a central question during one of the most chaotic and divisive weeks of Goodell's 11-year tenure, according to more than a dozen interviews conducted by Outside the Lines with players, owners, league, union, and team executives, and other executives briefed on confidential meetings, most of whom spoke only on the condition of anonymity. Last weekend's games were not just a protest about police brutality and racial inequality, which is why the still jobless Kaepernick said he sat during the playing of the anthem before taking a knee a year ago. It was also a protest against authority. Players defied the preference of many of their coaches and owners by kneeling. The Steelers, Seahawks, and Titans defied league rules by remaining in the locker room during the anthem, and Goodell let them slide. Led by Jacksonville Jaguars owner Shad Khan at Wembley Stadium in London, some owners locked arms on the sidelines with their players. A league famous for its control grappled with how to deal with losing it with the President of the United States steadfast in his determination to keep the issue dominating the national conversation. And so on Tuesday afternoon, 48 hours after the protests had defined a football Sunday, about 25 team owners entered the league's headquarters at 345 Park Avenue in New York City for routine committee meetings that quickly became anything but. Many barely paid attention during a stadium finance presentation. Finally, in the late afternoon, there was a meeting with owners and league executives to discuss what had happened. By then, Trump had tweeted nearly two dozen times attacking the NFL and its players. Tempers were hot. Some owners were angry that Joe Lockhart, the NFL's executive vice president of communications, who worked as President Bill Clinton's press secretary, had told reporters on a Monday conference call that the players' words and actions on the subjects of police brutality and racism were what real locker room talk is. It was a brazen shot at Trump, who was captured in a 2005 video talking, in explicit terms, about grabbing women by their vaginas, but later dismissed the video's contents as locker room banter. Owners, many of whom had supported Trump, and seven of whom had donated at least $1 million to him, felt that Lockhart had unnecessarily politicized the league's response. One owner barked angrily at Lockhart, who declined to comment about the matter, echoing a sentiment that most of them, especially Jones, shared. 
Nobody wanted to engage in a political mudfight with the White House, even if they were all pissed at the president, a league source said. Then the topic turned to the subject of angry fan bases and nervous sponsors. The Green Bay Packers and Pittsburgh Steelers, in particular, each had received significant blowback from their fan bases and sponsors. Fans had booed the Patriots and Cowboys for kneeling, and disgusted fans posted on Facebook and YouTube videos of them burning NFL merchandise. Most teams had already spoken with their coaches and player captains about how to proceed this weekend. After nearly 20 of its players knelt last Sunday at Gillette Stadium, the Patriots, for instance, had decided Monday that they would no longer kneel, but would put one hand over their heart and the other around the shoulder of the nearest teammate. The protests of the prior weekend's games had unfolded mostly at the discretion of the players, a rarity for the league. Goodell did not send out a mandate, which owners agreed had been wise. Pittsburgh owner Art Rooney II told Goodell last weekend that the Steelers had planned to stay in the locker room during the anthem, despite it being against the wishes of both men. Still, on this issue, the commissioner didn't try to impose his will. On this Sunday, it was better to let each club handle the matter on its own. Going forward, however, some owners preferred a league-wide directive. Dan Snyder, the Washington Redskins owner who declined to comment through a spokesman, argued that the protests needed to end because of the danger that the issue posed to the league's bottom line. A $40 million NFL sponsor was considering pulling out, he told his fellow owners. Snyder kept repeating, $40 million, to add emphasis, amusing a clique of owners who did the math and realized that, after the player's cut of the shared revenue, it amounted to considerably less than $1 million per club, hardly a game-changing sum for a league that last year had an average per-team profit of $101 million. In the meeting, many owners wanted to speak, but the discussion soon was hijacked, in the words of one owner, by Jones, a $1 million contributor to Trump's inaugural committee fund and who declined comment through a spokesman. The blunt Hall of Famer mentioned that he had spoken by phone more than once over the past 24 hours with Trump. Jones, said the president, who only a few years ago tried to buy the Buffalo Bills, had no intention of backing down from his criticism of the NFL and its players. Jones, who a day earlier for Monday Night Football in Arizona had orchestrated a team-wide kneeling before the anthem, ahead of rising to stand when it started to play, repeated his refrain that the protests weren't good for the NFL in the long run. Most agreed, but some felt that even if the league did lose a small percentage of fans due to the protests, it also could gain a new audience. There was a general, if fanciful, consensus that even a short-term financial hit could benefit the league in the long term especially if the league and the union could join in solidarity behind a single plan. That's how the league's marketing department was planning to proceed, even if some of the rough ideas fell flat. One idea had all players wearing a patch on their jerseys that would read, Team America. An owner briefed on the proposal simply shook his head. We need to do better than that. By the time Jones concluded his remarks, and by the time the meeting ended in the early evening, Nobody had pitched a concrete plan about how to move forward. A little while later, eight players from five teams, linebacker Jonathan Casillas of the New York Giants, safety Devin McCourty and special team star Matthew Slater of the Patriots, defensive end Chris Long of the Philadelphia Eagles, linebacker Christian Kirksey, cornerback Jason McCourty and tight end Randall Telfer of the Cleveland Browns, 
and offensive tackle Kelvin Beecham of the Jets entered the league boardroom at the NFL offices and took seats at the giant wood table with the league logo as its centerpiece. The meeting itself was representative of not only the entire week, but of the past few years, defined by discord and distrust on the issues separating the league and the union. Smith said last week that Goodell never mentioned the meeting with players during their Monday call and that he first got word of it after hearing that Troy Vincent, the NFL executive vice president of football operations, had reached out directly to at least a dozen team captains to invite them to attend. A league source, however, says that team owners, not Vincent, invited the players at the suggestion of Goodell. Both sides agree that Smith and other union executives were not invited until Tuesday morning, when Goodell asked them to attend in an email. But by then, it was too late. Smith was on the road for a series of locker room meetings and couldn't attend. Even something as simple as convening a mutually beneficial owners-players summit had ripped open scars. In a small protest of their own, more than a dozen players who initially had agreed to attend ended up canceling after hearing the union's leaders were initially unaware of the plans. While the NFL blamed the chaos of the week for the chaos surrounding the meeting, Smith was sure that Goodell had attempted an in-run around him with key players. I viewed that as insulting to our players' leadership, Smith said. The league tries to use some of our guys to give them cover, to get them on their side. Our players' leadership wasn't pleased, and I wasn't pleased. When the meeting commenced, Kraft, Rooney, Kahn, John Mara of the Giants, Stephen Ross of the Miami Dolphins, Jeffrey Lurie of the Eagles and Jimmy Haslam of the Browns were among the owners in attendance. Some of the owners sat next to the players at the table rather than across from them. The meeting was understood to be confidential. No senior league executives were permitted to attend except for Vincent. Early on, one of the players pointedly told the assembled owners, in particular Kraft, who this year gave his longtime friend Trump a Super Bowl 51 champions ring, We know a lot of you are in with Trump. This meeting is going on because the players think that some of the people that they work for are with his overall agenda, and that's not in the players' favor. I'm not with Trump, Ross said, alluding to the president's comments about the players, and I don't mind anyone printing that anywhere. All eyes turned to Kraft, who had been one of the strongest advocates of hosting this meeting with players. He said that players, while within their rights to peacefully protest, needed to understand that, at the end of the day, the NFL was a business, and that everyone in the room needed to think about it that way and to think about the people they entertain. Several other owners echoed Kraft's concerns that the president found a way to endanger the sport's popularity with a divisive, politically charged issue. This could kill football and end our business, an owner said. The session was off to an ugly start. A few owners believed the players were delivering union talking points. Players saw something more monumental. The owners found themselves in a position of weakness. Their worry about the impact on their business had become a crisis, and they needed the players to help them. For the first time, the owners are afraid of the players, Smith later said. It has less to do with money, and it has more to do with control. The owners are used to being in control, and they aren't on this. They know it. They hate it. During the two-hour meeting, the players also noticed there was no consensus among owners about what to do. Each owner was dealing with the protest differently, and the differing approaches and ideas seemed to rile up themselves more than anything the players had said. 
Toward the end, though, the tone of the conversation had turned, with players openly expressing their views and the owners listening. It felt more like an honest dialogue. In the Giants' locker room two days later, Casillas thanked Trump for what he had said during his rally because it had opened a meaningful conversation. He told reporters, I know the owners for sure don't want us kneeling, and players even agreed that kneeling might not be productive because the message had been misconstrued. Maybe we got to figure something else out. Another way to maybe get across the reason the protests happened from the beginning. There was nothing we decided we were going to do collectively. It was a very conducive meeting. I think both sides got to walk away with an understanding of how each other felt, McCourty later said. It was clear to several, but not all owners, that there was a divide between race, age, class, and social stature with the players, and it would be incumbent on owners to try to transcend it, whether they wanted to or not. Smith got a briefing on the players' meeting with the owners on Wednesday morning as he drove to Cincinnati for a locker room session with the Bengals. He was frustrated. The crisis had been mentally exhausting for some players, taking a toll on their ability to perform their jobs. The owners had no problem whatsoever giving up $10 billion worth of revenue when they decided they were going to cancel football for an entire year, Smith later said, referring to the owners' 2011 lockout. Now they want to make an economic argument to the players that exercising their freedom somehow hurts the business? But what frustrated Smith and several players most was the deeply offensive subtext of the questions, as if nobody was acknowledging that the players' issue, which was now the owners' issue too, was bigger than the NFL. Lockhart would later insist that the conversations had brought our teams together, but Smith disagreed. It was offensive to me because, historically, there was always a question of, what is it going to take in order for us to buy your voice of protest? The problem with that is, number one, it assumes we are doing this because we want something from the owners. And second, it's clear that once you commoditize a freedom, like the right to free speech, once you've sold it, you can never use it again. On Wednesday morning, several owners filed into a conference room on the sixth floor of the league's headquarters, which featured a large, football-shaped table. The meeting was supposed to be a standard committee update about business ventures, followed by a conference call on the protests. But upon Goodell's suggestion, the rest of the owners who were at Park Avenue ended up coming into the room. Goodell began by recapping the previous night's meeting with the players. He indicated that it began with the players seeming reserved and sticking to their union talking points, but things improved as it went on. He made clear that this wasn't going to be an issue that would go away overnight and that, moving forward, owners needed to find a solution that worked for everyone. We can't just tell them to stop, Goodell said of the players' protests. Many owners immediately argued otherwise. We need to find a way where Trump doesn't win, one said, and that meant using leverage as employers to end the protests. Another said, we'll get our guys in line. It was clear to many in the room that this was a regional issue as much as a political one, with owners' tolerance for kneeling shaped more by their fans and local markets than their own personal politics. Dan Snyder, who had joined his players in arms at FedEx Field on Sunday night, was in an especially divisive market and was particularly dismissive of the kneeling. It was raw for a lot of owners, an owner says. Some teams, such as the San Francisco 49ers and Denver Broncos, had been dealing with the protests for more than a year, and 49ers owner Jed York argued that it was a nuanced topic, with no easy answers, and that it would take time to navigate. 
we need to respect First Amendment rights, regardless of our personal feelings of the actions involved, York told the room. The session also felt like a lot of owners' meetings, with nobody running it, owners sitting behind poker faces as they wondered whether to express an opinion, and, finally, as usual, Jerry Jones filling the void. As much as any owner, Jones doesn't do anything that isn't good for the NFL's business interests. He reiterated that he was not in favor of the kneeling, but that the owners had to find a sincere way to listen to the players' concerns. How do we address the root issue for the players on this? He wondered aloud. In the long run, it's not good to kneel. People don't want football to be politicized, but there's a need to do something to listen to our players and help them. The meeting soon ended, without a clear path forward. The ideas to resolve the crisis were vague, reverting to what occurred until 2008, when the timing of the national anthem was for it to be finished before players left locker rooms. Allowing players who want to kneel to stay in the locker room, while the rest of the players stand. Focusing on hosting social justice forums. Finding a way to show moments of unity outside of the national anthem. Scheduling events that demonstrate support for troops by the league and players. The players and owners weren't as unified as they would later publicly state, but as one owner says, we've gotten out of crisis management and into how do we do this correctly. There was a chance that we didn't deal with it correctly, and it had passed. As always with the NFL, there was soon a game to be played. The night after the owners flew out of New York, the Packers and the Chicago Bears entered Lambeau Field for a Thursday game. There was as much anticipation for the national anthem as there was for the game between the NFL's oldest rivalry. Both teams stood shoulder to shoulder on the line where the sideline meets the field. As the crowd cheered, USA, 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 Green Bay quarterback Aaron Rodgers stood with his hands on his hips, waiting for the moment, with cameras zeroed in. Until recently, Rodgers had made a career out of not revealing many of his true convictions, but he seemed to have found a voice as an advocate for the protests, one of the few star quarterbacks to do so. Soon, it was time. Tight end Richard Rodgers locked his right arm into Aaron Rodgers' left, and receiver Randall Cobb linked his left with his quarterback's right. The chain continued down the sideline, a wall of white, trimmed with yellow and green. So it went with the bears on the other side. Nobody knelt. Uniformed military stood around an American flag so large that it looked like a picture framed by the field. Earlier in the week, Rogers had asked all fans who planned on attending the game to join the Packers in linking arms. Some did. Most didn't. It was hard to tell if any of the disparities in opinion or scale had been transcended, but after the anthem, the fans cheered what they wanted to cheer. Then, Rogers stalked the sideline, hugging any teammate who wanted a hug. It was a moment before the moment, and for the next few hours at least, everyone was watching the same game. That was Six Days in September by Don Van Netta and Seth Wickersham. Seth's with us now in the studio. Hey, Seth. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, so this story, at least for me, started when I saw everything sort of exploding on Twitter the weekend after the president uh, made his remarks. And then, obviously, there was the scramble as players and, and owners tried to figure out what they were going to do on that Sunday. This story sort of takes us into what happened afterwards. For you and Don, when were you sort of 
when did you sort of get launched on this story? What was the process for for chasing this down? Yeah, it was very organic. We didn't um, we hadn't planned on writing anything, and um, I think that we just started. You know, I think that when it happened, and the fact that the owners were coming to New York for the um, committee meetings that were pre scheduled. Um, you know, our repertorial antennas kind of went up and I went to New York for a couple of days and um, tried to talk to people there. And uh, he worked the phones from Miami. And I think that we realized that it was something that we could lend some insight to and had some fresh stuff on. And, you know, it was obviously a, a big defining moment. You know, it was unprecedented in the Goodell era. And usually when Don and I do stories together, we... Um, you know, spent a lot of time on them. And this was the first one we had done that was kind of quick. And I think that that it just worked well because I think that the right moment for this story was when it came out. So that was the cool part about it. Yeah. So for a piece like this, as you say, so you went to New York. Um, what's the process of trying to get people to talk for something like this? Because the majority of the people in this piece um, are off the record. Um, they, you know, they requested an, an anonymity. Um, so how are you approaching folks? You know, what, what are you doing to sort of get them to, to open up on something like this? Cause obviously Goodell probably does not want anyone to have the dirty laundry about what's going on here out in public. Um, you know, I think that by now, a, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and so is Don and B. So, so there's people you can call and get reaction from quickly. It's not, it's hard to get people to talk. I think that the harder thing is cutting through the spin. Yeah. You know, and I don't think anybody was trying to spin us per se, but I think that it when you do these tricky types of stories, people are just subjective and they see things through their lens. And, um, you, you know, so I think you're just kind of just gathering as much as you possibly can, seeing the, the pieces of, of reporting that have numerous people confirming that that's how it went. Um, then rechecking, <laughs> you know, we, we, we do we, we do we do that a lot. And then, you know, if we haven't talked to them earlier, you reach out to the people who are the principals involved or who said things in those meetings and you ask for comments. And usually they know that it's right and, you know, they don't really <laughs> well, dispute anything. Yeah, so. well, I, that's what I was really curious about because there, there's so much of this story is literally like you're in the room, like you're sitting next to these guys and you get a lot of great stuff about Jerry Jones basically owning this room or trying to uh, – and then, you know, you've got the line, like, Jones declined comment through. So how, how does that process work? I mean, if you go to Jerry Jones and say, listen, X, Y, and Z people said you said this, uh, how, how do you present that? Uh, you know, you present it as exactly as that, you know. You know, this is the reporting that we have, and this is, um, you know, the things that people have, have told us that went on in the room, and this, the, the we try to add context so that they understand that, um, you know, we're, we're trying to capture the, capture the full picture of what happened there. And, um, you know, everyone kind of responds differently, but, um, oh, you know, I'll give you an example, like, uh, Stephen Ross, there was the moment on the Tuesday night meeting, pretty amazing meeting between eight players and, um, you know, maybe 20 or so owners. Um, and, a, and a couple league executives, but it was understood to be a confidential meeting and it was hard to get detail out of it. And um, one of the players said, address the elephant in the room. And he said, you know, we know that a lot of you guys are with Trump and, you know, essentially said that his 
platform and his politics were the reason that they were all there. And um, Stephen Ross of the Dolphins replied, I'm not with Trump and I don't mind anybody printing that anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, that was something that we had heard. And, you know, we reach out to the Dolphins and Stephen Ross and, you know, they confirm it and they add context. And so we make sure to put the context in there to make sure that, you know, his thought process was accurately reflected. And, you know, that's kind of just how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So this this story takes place. It's very sort of time focused, obviously. Uh, and I, I'm wondering the process of going from getting a sort of a skeleton understanding of this meeting happened then, this meeting happened then, to fleshing out what was actually said in that meeting. How did you guys uh, figure that out? Yeah, that's, you know, that's not that hard because, you know, it, the other thing that was interesting about this story is that we were reporting it in real time. So after these meetings are over, we're getting people on the phone or trying to, you know, get drinks with them or whatever. And we're trying to piece together details from that day while it's still fresh in people's memories. And mm -hmm. so in that regard, it was pretty easy. It's harder to do, you know, time is not your friend with those types of things. And so it's harder to do with some of the stories that we had done before um, where there were meetings that, um, especially the story that we did on the the Derby for the Los Angeles market yeah. a couple of years ago. That one was a hard one because, um, you know, we had to do a lot of backtracking and go back to meetings that had happened a year or two before the story even came out. And so that part of it is hard. It's trying to get everyone's memories <laughs> in lockstep on that. So essentially the fact that they were meeting at noon and you basically catch up with them at six. Yeah. You know, uh, it's kind of like how you talk to your spouse. How was your day? What, ha <laughs> what happened? You know, it was kind of it. You know? Um, yeah, let's have a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the one of the pieces of this is that the NFL is at this really uh, feels like it's at a precarious time. And you and Don have written about ownership group and Goodell for a while now in different different ways. Um, how palpable is this sense of that the league is in is in danger? Because that is one of the things that comes across very strongly in this story is that it's not just that they want politics away from the game. It's that they worry that anything right now could sort of explode uh, this business. Yeah, I think that the hardest thing for the owners and for a lot of league executives was this was an, thing, something they couldn't control because it was the president of the United States that was steadfast in his determination to keep it in the spotlight. And I think that that made it different than a lot of the things that have come up is, is they had a hard time controlling it and the players felt like they had leverage. And that's unusual. And, you know... I think that the, I think that the, the the subtext of the story was this became a chance where the the union and the NFL could have come together and again they didn't yeah. and the reasons for it are complicated and varied it could begin and end with the fact that the league and the owners wanted the players to stop kneeling and there's people who that's deeply offensive to them and the suggestion is deeply offensive to them because you know nobody said this to me, this is me sort of paraphrasing, but like the players don't necessarily always want another forum. They wouldn't mind one of the owners going to the local police stations and saying, stop, 
you know, this brutality or stop this inequity. You know what I mean? It would really help the team if you stopped doing this. Versus, say, wearing a patch that says Team yes. America. Yes. You know, there were, some Worst dark, idea. there were some dark comedy moments in it. Worst idea. But, you know, I think that that's the thing is that, like, you know, how this began was something that it, with Colin Kaepernick, you know, the message has been lost. And maybe the message is different for each individual that's kneeling. But, you know, I think that at the heart of it is something that is it began under President Obama. It's, you know, amplified under President Trump. You know, what what Colin Kaepernick was trying to get at, at least initially, was something that is much bigger than the NFL and is a generational issue that, you know, he risked a lot to try to take a stand on. Right. And I think that that's the problem. I think that was the issue is that like a lot of the owners were like, well, what do you guys want? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not the that's not the right question. Yeah. And I think that to Roger Goodell's credit, I think that he was not one of those people. And I think he was genuinely I don't think he wanted them kneeling. And I think he understood that it was bad for business. But I don't think that he realized that he, he I think he definitely realized that this was a complicated topic and it wasn't something that could just get solved by, you know, one meeting at night. Right. And as you said, you know, he didn't exactly discipline uh, the teams for either staying in uh, the locker rooms or or for kneeling and things like that. Uh, the other thing that this story surfaces, though, is that there's obviously dissension and questions from different owners, depending on region, depending on market. You know, you point out Denver versus Denver and San Francisco versus other parts. Um, you know, would people be, be surprised by that to some extent that there's so much sort of uh, division, I guess, among among the owners in this way? You know, probably not. Y- you know, it's, y- you know, I, I, because football is, you know, I think that the 49ers got a lot of support from their fan base when they supported Kaepernick. And I think that in other regions of the country, that just isn't as acceptable. And I think that that was, I think the players began to understand that this, you know, for the owners, and they understood that it's a business, but I think they understand that there's a lot more nuance to it than, um, you know, than maybe they had previously realized. And even, you know, you have the Patriots, you know, in um, in Massachusetts, very traditionally, at least liberal state, they were getting booed for kneeling. You know, mm-hmm. some, and, and I think that, um, you know, Dan Snyder, obviously, in a very divisive market, and he, you know, was one of the proponents of this ending. You know, how do we get this, you know, and using leverage to say no more. And it's interesting because, you know, you had Adam Silver come out last week and he issued a statement saying it's the policy that everybody stands and that's the way it's going to be. And I thought that was really interesting because um, Roger could never get away with something like that. I think in the league offices, they were wondering, like, how is it that Adam Silver can issue a statement like that saying this is our policy and people are going to adhere to it and that's the way it is. And, you know, the NFL and Goodell are sort of looked at as not being quite as progressive, and yet they didn't do that. In fact, um, you know, they, you know, Roger waived the rules, you know, of the teams that were in violation of not being out on the field. And it's it's a tricky thing, but I think, again, it goes back to the subtext of our story, which is that the union and the NBA office has a much better relationship than the NFL and the NFL Players Union. and. Yeah. That I think that there's just there's so little trust in the NFL between the union and the league office that something like that, I think, 
it's like everything just becomes an issue and it becomes a tactic. Yeah. It, so that was actually one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about because that subplot is really interesting in here because it, it almost sounds like it was an afterthought to get the union involved, that they were sort of trying to work around them in some ways. How soon did you guys find out about that dynamic and, and uh, sort of how did you have to report that part out? Very quickly. And that's how the union took it. Um you know, the the NFL pushed back on it a little bit, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody who, who knows Roger well always says Roger's best when he's talking directly to players. You know, not talking to the union, but talking directly to players. And it definitely seemed like, you know, the NFL will say, look, it was a chaotic week and that was the reason for this chaotic meeting. And there might be a lot of truth to that. The union definitely took it as, hey, we hear that, you know, they took it as an end around. And, you know... For better or for worse, D decided to use that. Yeah, and you know he. I think he was in Cincinnati on Tuesday. You know that's a ninety-minute flight from New York. I mean, you know maybe he could have gotten back to it. I don't know, but you know he decided to use that as a, you know, an, an a small battle in this larger war. Right, and um, you know, so it again, it it these things have a tendency to get ugly really fast when it's the, the league and the union. And, um, you know, so we were reporting that stuff in real time. Like I had learned about the meeting the, the night of, and um, I was really hoping word wouldn't get out, but it did um, on Thursday. But, you know, I think we were able to add some fresh details and fresh analysis to it. And, um, you know, but again, it was, it was a really interesting just process because, you know, owners were flying their players in, especially the ones that were nearby. Mm-hmm. And one of the players happened to be in the league office that day. And so, um, you know, how that meeting got put together was was really, um, you know, again, it was just indicative of the past couple of years between the league and the union. Right, right. So something that you were just alluding to, you guys are doing the reporting in real time. The story comes out at the end of the week. How are you and Don writing this in real time you know what mm-hmm. what kind of tools are, is this are you, is this sort of like you and don are in a google doc together sort of line by line are you sharing drafts like how does this how does this work yeah we the way we write is we just always take the sections that we know best and we write those and then we sort of write through each other's work to the point where you sort of sync the voices and the style so it doesn't feel like two different people wrote it um you know chris buckle our editor you know works really well with that too and sort of the, the peril of writing with somebody is that you have redundancies right. or if you, you, you try to set up an idea early that never quite gets answered or gets answered too quickly or, you know, just in terms of looking at it from a storytelling standpoint, we wanted it to feel, you know, less of like of a report, but to have that storytelling aspect, that magazine writing quality aspect and, um, you know, have it be scene driven. And so, you know, that was the reporting challenge. But once you get the scenes, it's pretty easy to write because you're just writing what happened. Right, right. And on that note, though, specifically, what is the trickiest part about recreating a scene? Because like I said, there's there's points when you guys, it's all. It's not like I'm reading minutes because that would be dry and boring. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you're, you're, you're creating these scenes where it's like the owners were getting bored talking about this mundane stuff because they really wanted to get to this. What's the hardest part in, in trying to craft that? Well, it's like that new that old newspaper adage. Nobody knows the truth. They just know what people told them. <laughs> you know, that's it, you know, and like you don't want to be limited by the people who tell you things in terms of like what in, in terms of what dialogue happened, because you don't right. want to feel like that 
you're not capturing everything that happened in the room because you're just getting it through one person's eyes. And so, again, that's the challenge. But again, you know, when you report, it's like the more information you get, the more people open up. And um, it's a fun process, honestly. Like mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's it's the reporting in a lot of ways is easier than the writing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then let's for the last question, as you mentioned, Chris Buckle, the uh, editor for a lot of the investigations we do around here. Uh, what's the process of getting this out the door in terms of verifying things? I'm sure lawyers are involved on some level. Um, you know, what's what's the editing in this in this like? You know, it just he edits like any normal story. You know, he raises questions. He wants to make sure that you you know uh, all the sources are primary sources, i.e., they were in the room and you know there were firsthand accounts. And um, you know, we've been through this a lot with him, so it's pretty routine. And I think that. You know, there was nothing legally questionable, I think, in that story. Um, but, you know, and I think he then he has, you know, people read it behind him to make sure that we're not missing anything or if any questions are raised. But, um, you know, the, 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 the editing process, he kind of takes it from there. So, you know, he could probably speak to that a little bit better. But, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a thorough and good process and it's something that, you know, again, we just enjoy because we're reporting this stuff in real time and you never want to have, you never want to have to eat any piece of reporting. You yeah. know, even if you feel like it happened, you never want to have to eat it. And he's, you know, an invaluable backstop to that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, so this story, as you said, it's happening in real time. Was it difficult to sort of close the door and say, this is when we've got to leave this story you know like this is the point where this story ends because it feels like obviously it's still ongoing and, and as you guys point out there was no solutions really like these guys had to get on planes because another weekend of football was coming up mm-hmm. uh, was there any difficulty in sort of finding the end point for this no because the you know the the football has this weird sort of you know I don't want to say it's like a healing effect because that's like not that's that's cheapening like the point of all this. But it's like there's there's a rhythm to it, yeah. and the rhythm goes on. And because there was a game on Thursday, you, you know, it didn't serve as an ending for the problems, but it did serve as an ending for the story. And you know, it was a couple of days of chaos, but at the end of the day, the the game still happened. Yeah, they always do, and because it did something had to happen and it happened before the game and the national anthem ended up being, you know, the anticipation for the national anthem ended up being as much as the anticipation for the game itself. Right. And because that happened, I think that it was able to serve as an ending for the story, even if the issues are clearly obviously in, you know, they're unresolved and I don't know how they're going to be resolved. Right. Right. Uh, Seth Wickersham, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, man. You can read Seth and Don's story on ESPN.com. And for more investigations and features, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. That's all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The double truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to the Double Truck Stories podcast on your favorite podcast player. We'll be back soon with more stories, and until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.